Matthew chapter 3, and we will be focusing our attention on Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. And so let us read God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and sufficient word together this morning. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, reads this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. When you look at this text, you see the first words, in those days, in those days. Now, in context here, it's simply a time marker. Most likely, it's a time marker that's meant to bring us back to uh, chapter 2 when we read that Jesus returned to Nazareth. In those days, meaning in the days while Jesus was in Nazareth, but there is so much more for us to understand when we read or about those days. What were those days? What was going on inside the, the mind and heart of your average Israel, Israelite in those days? Well, let's talk about that. Israel was in the throes of enduring 400, over 400 years of deafening silence from the Lord. And throughout her history, the Lord had repeatedly sent prophets to His chosen but wayward and disobedient and stiff-necked nation of idolaters, calling them to turn from their sin and turn back to the Lord the Lord who called them, the Lord who redeemed them out of the hand of Egyptian slavery, the Lord who sustained them during their wilderness wanderings, the same Lord who had entered into a covenant with them, taking them to be His people and dwelling among them as their God. But Israel consistently spurned and rejected the advances of the Lord. This Lord who held out His hands to receive them every minute of every day. And so eventually, because of the consistent rebellion and the consistent refusal to turn back to the Lord, the Lord justly brought about the curses of the covenant that He had made with them. The curses being that if they disobeyed His commands, He would remove them from the land that He had given them. Or as he said through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 11, they would perish quickly off the good land. But there was one particular prophet during this 400 years of silence who held a special spot in the hearts and in the minds of Israelites. And this prophet was Elijah. And this because the very last words spoken through a prophet to the people of Israel came through the lips of Malachi who said, In chapter 4, verses 5 to 6 of the book that bears his name, said, Behold, I will send you Elijah, 
Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And as a result of this prophecy, over the 400 years of no prophetic words from the Lord, the people waited. They waited for the literal return of the literal Elijah who would arrive to continue his ministry among them of calling them to the Lord. Now we know Elijah the prophet spoke oracles, the oracles of God to the kings of the nation and also to the regular people of Israel as he called this stubborn nation languishing under the leadership, the idolatrous and sacrilegious leadership of King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel, both of whom encouraged, both of whom promoted idolatry among the people. And so on one occasion, Elijah called for the nation of Israel as a whole to repent and turn, return to the Lord. He cried out to the people in 1 Kings 18.21, saying, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God... Follow him. If Baal is, then follow him. And so, in order to display with absolute clarity the power and the wonder of Yahweh, Israel's God, Elijah set up a contest between himself, the lone prophet in Israel, the lone prophet of the Lord in Israel at the time, and the 450 prophets lined up against him that served Baal. And each of them would set up their respective altars and each of them would ask their God to answer their prayers with fire and the one who answered the prayers, he, was, he is God. And so the 450 prophets of Baal cried out all day long, cutting themselves, wailing, weeping, moaning, shouting for him to answer. But the text of Scripture is crystal clear. 1 Kings 18.29 tells us, There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Elijah, on the other hand, alone called out to the Lord, saying in 1 Kings 18.36-37, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And the Lord miraculously, amazingly, awesomely answered when in 1 Kings 18 we read that the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah then commanded the nation commanded the people to seize and slaughter the prophets of Baal on that day for the time being, turning the hearts of the people back to their heavenly father. And the people complied. Elijah, 
like all of the prophets before him and all of the prophets after him, called for the repentance of the people. For them to turn away from their sinful, wicked deeds and idolatry and turn to the Lord. However, unlike all of the other prophets, Elijah is special in that he did not die. He was instead, as he passed his mantle on to his successor Elisha, according to 2 Kings 2.11, taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. So we read that Elijah, Elijah was a preacher of repentance who, according to messengers from King Ahaziah in 2 Kings 1.8, wore a garment of hair with a belt around his waist. And he was also, for the time, the lone prophet in Israel calling for the repentance of the people. And so, from the final prophecy of Malachi until the arrival in those days of John the Baptist, the nation of Israel waited for God to send another prophet. They waited with anticipation and bated breath for the reappearance of Elijah as they endured for those 400 years varying levels of subjection to foreign powers and even a little bit of freedom. They endured the rule of Greece for a time. And when Alexander the Great died and refused to name an heir upon the breakup of the Greek Empire, they fell under the rule of what's called the Ptolemaic Empire. And the Ptolemaic Empire ruled over them for a time, and then they were subsumed by the Seleucid Empire. And the Seleucids were an, an oppressive regime when it came to Israel. Antiochus, the ruler of the Seleucid Empire, sought to eliminate Judaism altogether and to bring class and respectability in his mind to the peoples by imposing upon them a more cultured Greek lifestyle. He wanted to eliminate their religion as well and exchange it for cultured Greek religion. Now that didn't sit well with the already agitated and expectant people. And Judas Maccabeus rose up and led the people in an uprising. And the arrogant Antiochus, thinking that this Jewish rebellion would be nothing, would be simple, he dispatched his armies to Judea, assuming that the B team could take care of it. And so he gave his B team generals the the duty and the job of making sure that they quelled this Jewish rebellion. But boy, was he wrong. As Judas Maccabeus outmaneuvered Antiochus' army at every turn and guided the Jews to a victory without actually that much difficulty. It's quite amazing. But Antiochus was not a man to take this lying down. Embarrassed by the glaring defeat, he responded by gathering a force of 60,000 troops and he called in not the B team this time, but the A team, not the television show, but the, the best of his generals, General Lysias. And he sent this army along with his top general out to massacre the Jews. Now listen to this, hear this. The Jewish army at, were outnumbered five to one. And as tradition records, Judas lifted up his hands and he called upon the Lord for help and he called upon the Lord for deliverance and against almost impossible odds, he once again defeated the Seleucid army. 
And thoroughly humiliated this time, Antiochus cobbled together another small force and he attempted another small, feeble attack but was again repelled without much effort. And after this, Israel had gained her independence once again. They cleaned out the temple, they rededicated it to the Lord, and they celebrated with great joy for eight days. And this festival is still observed by the Jews today, and now it is called Hanukkah. And for the next century, Israel claims some level of autonomy again, but not like it was under David and Solomon. But that autonomy did not last forever. Because the Republic of Rome, under General Pompey, who had been called in to settle a dispute over the ruler, over who should be the ruler of Judea once the queen died, and her sons, arguing with each other, plunged the the nation into a bitter civil war. And as Pompey, General Pompey, arrived to set the fighting claimants in order, one of them ref- was ref- refused to let Pompey into the city. And Pompey, General Pompey, got so angry about this that he laid siege to the city and brought it completely under Roman rule. And once again, in 63 BC, the Jews found themselves under foreign and oppressive leadership. And now as they endured this foreign oppression once again, along with the silence of the Lord, messianic expectation among the people grew as they looked for the reappearance of Elijah. Because they knew, they believed that when Elijah appeared, that meant that the Messiah's arrival was at hand. And serious and committed Jews living under Roman rule were so hopeful and so eager for Elijah's return that they actually kept open seats at all of their celebratory feasts and festivals. They kept open seats at their dinner tables every night, filling cups and putting plates out, waiting in readiness for Elijah to come and sit in one of those seats and usher in the Messiah. Even to this day, Many Orthodox Jews continue that tradition. Even though Malachi's prophecy has, as we will see, been returned, been, been fulfilled, they still, because they rejected their king, await the return of Elijah, who has already come. But in the Jewish minds, as they waited for Elijah, they believed that he would come, he would redeem, the Messiah would come after him and redeem them from their overlords. He would lead them into a golden age in Jerusalem which would be to a far greater degree like that which they experienced under King David, under King Solomon, with peace on all sides, with unparalleled prosperity, along with the respect and the admiration of all the neighboring nations. And it is in this context that we read in John, or, uh, Matthew 3, verse 1, In those days, John the Baptist came. In those days of eager anticipation and eager awaiting for the return of Elijah, in those days, John the Baptist came. And look at verse 4. And John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So Matthew's just not trying to give us a picture of John's fashion sense here. He wants us to call, he wants the, our mind to be called back to Elijah the prophet, who, when we read about him just earlier, remember, wore a garment, also wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. 
Matthew here is informing us that John is, in fact, the Elijah that is to come. John was, like Elijah, the lone prophet in Israel for a time. John was, like Elijah, a prophet who called for the repentance of the people. John was, like Elijah, one who wore garments of hair with leather belts on his waist. He isn't the literal Elijah, and so in that sense, he isn't what Israel was expecting. But as the angel Gabriel revealed to John's parents in Luke chapter 1, we read this in verses 16 and 17. John is the one who will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In other words, John is the one that Malachi prophesied. He's here. He's arrived. And the religious leaders, they took notice of John's ministry. They took notice of his preaching. They took notice of his appearance and his actions and they sent their minions to him to inquire of him, asking who he was. Who are you? And John was very, very, very clear, I am not the Messiah. And so their follow-up question was, what then? Are you Elijah? To which John, knowing their expectation that the literal Elijah would return, replied, I am not. See, John was not Elijah in the way that they expected Elijah to come. But he was the fulfillment of the prophecy made through Malachi as Luke makes so abundantly clear to us. John is the one to come who will turn the hearts of the people to their God. John is the one who has come to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. John is the long-awaited return of Elijah. John is the first true prophet to speak to the people in over four centuries. Hallelujah. God is faithful. And even when it seems like there is this amazingly long amount of time, God is always working and He's always remembering His promises. Always, always is God faithful to everything that He says. And John's clothing, reminiscent of Elijah, revealed to the people His absolute commitment to the Lord's call on His life. John was a prophet of urgency. And his life modeled the seriousness of the message that he brought as he called people away from their fixation on worldly deeds, on worldly goods, on worldly systems, on their cravings and on their passions. His clothes were simple. His food was simple. Even the location of his ministry, the wilderness, was simple. In the minister, and in his ministering in the wilderness, he called the people away from the hustle and from the bustle of city life of their work lives, of their home lives, to come to him for a focused hearing of God's call on them. And Matthew makes this location of John's ministry so clear in order to help the reader grasp why, in verse 5 and forward, so many people journeyed out to see him. That John preached in the wilderness caused the people to take note. It caused them to go and check him out and to inquire as to whether he would be the one to lead Israel's renewal. 
The entirety of John's life and ministry, from his clothing, his food, his location, they all reflect the message that he preached, that the niceties of life, the soft, comfortable clothing, the fancy food, none of it meant anything to him. His life was totally, from birth, dedicated to calling Israel away from obsession with these things and to repentance in their life in order to make way for the Messiah. Matthew also reveals to the reader in verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3, that John the Baptist is, look at the text, he is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Not only was John the fulfillment of a prophecy made 400 years earlier by Malachi, but he was also the fulfillment of prophecies made 800 years earlier by Isaiah as well. Finally, after centuries of silence, a voice, a voice. And in Isaiah, the wilderness, the voice in the wilderness. Wilderness was a metaphor for desolation. It was a metaphor for ruin. And the wilderness is where John comes preaching his message of repentance. Out of the wilderness, out of the gloom, comes a voice. The time for renewal is at hand. It's offered to you. The Lord is coming. Prepare yourselves for the arrival of your king. And if you go back to the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 40, in context, he spoke of the approach of the Lord. The arrival of Yahweh himself who would lead the procession of Israel as they returned to their homeland after long years of captivity. The people must be made ready for his coming. And so a herald is sent before the Lord's arrival who cries out to the people to prepare themselves. And Matthew here applies this picture to John, as does John the Baptist himself in the Gospel of John. In this way, we know that John the Baptist's ministry is one of preparation. One like Elijah's that calls people to return to the Lord. John's ministry was aimed at readying the people of Israel, both individually and corporately, for the arrival of the king, the Lord himself. An arrival that brings, as we will see in the next weeks, salvation to those who trust him and judgment for those who don't. And so how does John prepare the way for the Lord? How does he make the paths of the Lord straight? Well, he comes preaching. Amen. Gotta love it. I love that text. He came preaching. And the content of his preaching, look at verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John came preaching. And as an aside, John is a preacher's preacher. Can I just say that? John is a preacher's preacher. John is the type of preacher who is sorely needed in many churches today. A preacher who calls for the repentance of the people. A preacher who points everybody to Jesus Christ. His preaching exhorted hearers to a more lively trust in Christ. His preaching was clear. Repent. I mean, it's so clear. He's not cagey with his words. He doesn't try to be crafty in order to to balance or, or stand on some sort of line that doesn't offend either side. No, he was clear. John gave the full counsel as he understood it, not fearing human responses. Eventually, his he was beheaded for it. 
John tore down pride in the unrepentant. John lifted up the downcast, those dejected souls who see, who sense their sin, who sense their unworthiness, and he will, will as we will see, baptize them. So see, John is a preacher's preacher. And as he comes preaching, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, here we see two things. We see the command, repent, and we see the reason for the command, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we're going to take the remainder of our time to look through those two things. Repent, and the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven is at hand. So let's look at the reason first. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is exactly what the Jews hoped to hear. They had been awaiting the kingdom, which was to them a restored, physical, Davidic-type kingdom. This expectation is in keeping with the words of the prophets, both those prophets who spoke before the exile and those prophets who spoke after the exile. Before Israel went into captivity and after they went, came out of captivity. Zephaniah, for example, in chapter 3 of his, of his prophecy, verses 14 to 20, he was the last prophet who spoke before Judah was taken into captivity. He spoke the word of the Lord to the people, promising that their literal fortunes of a literal Israel or Judah would be restored. And other prophets as well, speaking of literal Jerusalem. Now, just another aside, when you look at your scriptures, when you are interpreting or trying to understand your scriptures, the primary fundamental rule in interpreting scriptures is that the Bible's, the authorial intent controls our interpretation. We must understand what the author meant to say and interpret their words according to their intention and in accordance with the genre of their writing. While there might be great spiritual fulfillments to a prophetic word, that does not eliminate, erase, or supersede the original intention of the author. So Ezekiel, for example, he saw a vision of the glory of the Lord filling the temple. Now, It is legitimate to see Christ's tabernacling or dwelling among us, to see Christ's entering into Jerusalem as some deeper and greater fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision. I grant that. And what, but what will occur in the future is not less. It will not be less than what Ezekiel saw. Ezekiel's vision was quite specific with clear measurements for the city of Jerusalem, along with clear measurements for the temple. And this return of God's glory to the temple in Jerusalem will come to pass at some point in the future. There is a reason why Antiochus, remember him, the Seleucid guy, could enter into the temple around the time of the Maccabean revolt and offer a pig on the altar in the most holy place of the temple without his being killed instantly. Because God no longer dwelt there. The Ark of the Covenant was not there. Had they been, Antiochus' life would have been forfeit. The glory of the Lord had not returned to the temple. The totality of what Ezekiel witnessed has not yet occurred. And God is true to his word. Therefore, it will come to pass at some point in the future. The prophet Haggai also In chapter 2 of his prophecy, after Israel had returned from exile during the reign of King Darius of Persia, prophesied that the latter glory of the temple would be greater than the former glory of the temple. And we are still awaiting the fulfillment of that promise. 
Again, it is fair and legitimate to apply such promises to their greater fulfillment in Christ, making His dwelling among us. He is, after all, the greater temple. He is. But that is not what Haggai intends when he spoke these words. While the prophecy might mean more and might have deeper spiritual meanings, it does not mean less. So in the days of John the Baptist, the promises of Israel's restored kingdom still hung in the air. It was the promise on the minds of the disciples, even after the resurrection of Christ after they had spent 40 days with the resurrected Jesus, speaking about, Acts 1-3, the kingdom of God, the question that came out of their discussions was about timing in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. The question that the disciples asked was this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what they got from their time with Christ. Now there are some who will say, oh, look at those dumb disciples. They mistook, it, they mistook it again. They didn't get it again. But no, that's a legitimate question that arises out of their time with Jesus. After all that time listening to him, after all that time of him teaching them, their question is, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And when they say that, they mean the literal kingdom as prophesied to us in the Old Testament. To which Jesus replied, it's not a rebuke, It's not a denial. Jesus replied this way in Acts 1-7. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, don't worry about the when. It's coming. But there are so many facets to this kingdom that you have not fully grasped yet. It is not less than the fulfillment of the prophetic promises made to Israel, but it is more. The ultimate kingdom will include all who repent and believe in King Jesus, not just Israel. And this aspect of the kingdom, this was the aspect of the kingdom that Israel hoped for, this reestablishment of Israel's glory days. When John arrived preaching, and when he cried out for the people to recognize the arrival of the king, the long-awaited Messiah who had come to them, they would eventually reject him. And in so doing, they rejected the kingdom that they so desperately hoped for. Because the kingdom of heaven, which is Matthew's way of saying the kingdom of God, was and is and always has been contingent upon Israel's repentance. But repentance for Israel was not part of the deal. For the Jews and the Jewish leaders, they were too proud to repent. They didn't think they had to repent. They just had to kind of stand around and wait. And when the kingdom came, it would just naturally come upon them simply because they were Jews. And because they were too proud to repent, they did not, the kingdom did not set itself up at that time. Instead, they sought, to, they sought the death of the king in order to maintain. Religious leaders sought the death of their king in order to maintain their pride, their power, their position, and their status. John MacArthur provides a helpful overview of the kingdom for us in his commentary on Matthew when he lays out for us five stages of the kingdom. The first stage is the prophesied kingdom, meaning the kingdom as foretold by the prophets. The second is stage is the present kingdom, the kingdom that we see at the time of John and at the time of Jesus, the kingdom which is 
breaking in, the kingdom which is ready to burst forth, the kingdom which is like a dam that is ready to break and come, come flowing in. That's the kingdom that is being held out in the ministries of John and Jesus. Thirdly, the interim kingdom. Because Israel rejected her king, which is all a part of God's plan, which we will talk about in a second, and, and instead sought to secure his crucifixion, Christ rose from the dead, he returned to heaven, and he reigns right now from heaven in the hearts of all of those who know him as Lord and as Savior. Fourth is the manifest kingdom. So we've got the prophesied kingdom, the present kingdom, the interim kingdom, and now the manifest kingdom. When Israel finally repents and believes in King Jesus, which is a future event, Christ will return and rule physically, directly, and fully on earth for a thousand years. And finally, after the manifest kingdom, after the thousand years, the eternal kingdom, where all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, will live with him in perfect joy, in perfect peace, and in perfect happiness for eternity. So the promise that John is holding out to Israel in this, in this call to repentance is that of the manifest kingdom, the rule of the Lord on earth. And again, it's always been contingent upon the real and true repentance of Israel. The Lord said as much through the prophet Zechariah who is another prophet whose major concern was the restoration of literal Jerusalem. In chapter 1, verse 3 of Zechariah, the Lord says to Israel, Return to me, and I will return to you. Return to me, and I will return to you. So the kingdom of heaven has a physical and literal dimension to it as God who remains true to his promises to Israel will glorify his loyalty, will glorify his faithfulness, will glorify his steadfast love in the future establishment of a literal kingdom in Jerusalem upon their national repentance from which they will go out into the world pointing people to their Lord, to their King, to their Savior. They will be the kingdom of priests they were supposed to be. They will be the light to the nations that they are supposed to be. And Paul, in Romans chapter 11, says this, If their rejection, Israel's rejection, means riches for the world, can you just imagine what their full inclusion will mean? So here again, John came preaching the nearness, the readiness of this manifest kingdom to come into creation. However, however, the Lord brought what the Apostle Paul terms in Romans 11.25, a partial hardening upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The Lord brought a partial hardening upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So in the plan of God, he consigned Israel to disobedience in order to ensure the grafting in of the Gentiles. And this is one of the reasons for our Lord speaking in parables during his earthly ministry. The disciples came to Jesus and asked him, why do you use parables? And his answer Jesus' answer is actually quite surprising. In Matthew 13, verses 10, 13, and 15, he says this, To you, disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, 
nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So Israel's rejection of the offer of the kingdom given to them by both John and Jesus was rejected by them as prophesied in and by Isaiah. Israel would hear the words with their ears, but not with their hearts. They would see the Lord Jesus, but not truly see him because they have closed their eyes, they have shut up their ears, they have hardened their hearts, and all of this in fulfillment of God's word through his prophet Isaiah, and this in order to bring in all of God's children, all who in God's saving love were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. All who were predestined to adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6. Now, that does not mean, however, that God has rejected his people Israel forever. By no means. Isaiah also prophesied in chapter 45, verse 17, these words. Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Listen to that again. Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. And Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, writes specifically regarding ethnic literal Israel, saying this, As regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, the question might fairly arise, why would God lay out his plan of salvation this way? You know, why would it be that John comes preaching the the establishment of a kingdom for Israel upon repentance... But the Lord brought about and maintains a partial hardening upon Israel so that the fullness of the Gentiles might come in and then Israel too at the end will come to repentance and in this way all Israel will be saved. Why would, why would God do that? Why would, why, <laughs> I, that's a plan I don't quite understand. Even Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he mapped out the plan of God in Romans 11, knowing that God's reasons for doing things this way is above his own pay grade, ended the section by praising God's wisdom. And this is one of my favorite texts. Every time I read it, it puts me in my place. It reminds me of my absolute dependence on the Lord. It reminds me that the Lord is the one who set the foundations of the earth. The Lord is the one who does all of these things, and I do not know. I wasn't there. I feel like Job a lot of times. You've spoken, and and that's it. I'm, I'm good with that. It reminds me of my place as a man of mere dusts, dust, and that I am nobody to question or speak back to God about the plans that he has in his perfect wisdom chosen to bring to pass. And in Romans eleven thirty three to 36, as Paul is mapping out this plan, he can only end the section with these words. Oh, the depth of the riches and, knowledge, and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable his ways For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So again, this manifest kingdom or the literal establishment of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven was contingent upon Israel's repentance, which is why John came preaching, repent. But seeing as Israel did not repent, we find ourselves now in the period of the interim kingdom as Christ rules from heaven in the hearts of all who know him as Lord and Savior. And in our day, during the interim kingdom, just as the call went out to Israel to repent, the call goes out to all of us, each and every one of us, all across the world, to do the same. We must also repent and bow our knee to the king. If we would enter his kingdom, we must turn to him. Now that begs the question. John preached repent. So what does it mean to repent? Repentance is the turning of the whole person from sin to God in obedience to the good news of the kingdom. A true turning, as we will see next week, will be authenticated by the Spirit and result in ever-increasing life of obedience to Christ. But today, we're going to just kind of try and explain true repentance. Now, the Puritans, my heroes, my theological heroes, were very sensitive to and keen on preaching this concept of repentance. One of the great works on the subject is called The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. And in this work, he lays out six characteristics of the truly repentant. And we're going to end with these six characteristics. The first uh, component of repentance is that the truly repentant person acknowledges their sin. The truly repentant person acknowledges their sin. You admit, you concede, you recognize this fact. You sin. You are a sinner, and your sin has alienated you from the Lord. Now, this is way more difficult than we think. It's way more difficult than you might expect, because without the intervention of the Spirit, our minds are so veiled by self-love, by self-idolatry, that we are unable to see and grasp and understand the deformity that sin has brought upon our souls when we are not saved and not repentant. We cover it over because we love sin so much. The, tr- the first step in true repentance is that we truly acknowledge the fact that we are sinners and that our sin is grievous. And if you do not recognize and admit this fact, there can be no true repentance. So the question for you this morning is, do you admit Do you acknowledge, do you recognize that you are a sinner? Second, the truly repentant person is sorrowful over their sin. The truly repentant person is sorrowful over their sin. Not sorrowful because of the consequences of sin in your life. Not sorrowful because you've been caught red-handed, but sorrowful because of that all of our sin is committed against God himself, the most wonderful being in existence. A good example of sorrow for sin is found in Luke 7. You remember it, when a woman of the city who was a sinner 
learned that Jesus was eating in the house of a Pharisee. And she pressed into the house, weeping and sobbing over the sins that she had committed throughout her life. And she made her way to the feet of Jesus and stood by his feet. And she poured ointment, anointed them with ointment and wiped them with her hair, weeping as she did so. She was in agony over her sin. And she ran to the only one who could forgive her for that sin. She was sorrowful for it. Are you, like this woman, sorrowful for your sin? Third, firstly, it's acknowledge. Second, it's sorrow. Third, it's confession. The truly repentant person confesses their sin. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31, the Apostle Paul wrote that if we would just judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Meaning that the confession of sin is a grace that is given to us by God. In our confession of sin, we leave behind the darkness of shame and disgrace. We leave behind the prison of shame and disgrace. And in our confession of sin, we leave the lockup of Satan's accusations. If, just If in our times of prayer and in our times of fellowship with believers, which will come again soon, I pray, if we confessed our sins, our sins of pride, our sins of arrogance, our sins of faithlessness, addiction, covetousness, and the like, guess what? When you confess, when we confess, we cut Satan off at the knees. Satan is called, in Scripture, the accuser of the brethren. But what power does Satan have in that role if we beat him to the punch? What can his accusations do in us and to us if we have already brought our sins to the Lord in confession? It's like that frequent plot line we see in movies, right? Or in books. Someone gets dirt on another person and uses that information to extort them. Do what I say or I'll tell everyone about your dirty little secret. And the whole time, if you're anything like me, you're like, just tell everybody. Get out ahead of it. Face the consequences for it. Why be caught in this prison of shame over this stuff? Cut the accuser off. Confess. And they won't have anything over you. Can you imagine the scene? Imagine the scene with me. Satan has come from going to and fro throughout the earth as we read in Job and he stands before the Lord to accuse you. And the Lord, hearing Satan's laundry list of your sins, listening to the diatribe of Satan about how you are so unworthy, replies, I know, they've already confessed it. And they're forgiven because Christ absorbed their penalty at the cross. You got anything else? There is no condemnation for them. They are in Christ. Their sin is confessed. So brothers and sisters, get your confessions out to the Lord before Satan has the opportunity to burden your conscience with them. Sit in judgment on yourself. Confess. You deserve nothing more than the righteous wrath of God. And hear the Lord's reply for everyone who has truly repented and put their faith and trust in Jesus that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus your Lord. Confession is a true blessing. Now, when you confess, let your confession be true confession. Augustine, the great 
fourth century saint, or not saint, but the great fourth century church father, before he turned to the Lord, admitted that when he would pray and when he would confess outwardly, begging for the Lord's power to defeat his sin, he would be whispering at the same time inwardly, not yet, Lord. He didn't really want to leave his sin behind. And the truly repentant will confess their sin truly. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't try to lessen the filthiness of your sin. Confess it truly and rejoice in the greatness of your Savior who loves to forgive sin because he is that good. Acknowledge your sin. Be sorrowful for your sin. Confess your sin. Fourthly, be ashamed of your sin. Recognize the truly repentant person recognizes that their sin is an abuse against the kindness of God. Our sin led to the cross of Christ and therefore it should inspire some shame in us that we have committed it. And when you go to the Lord and you beg for forgiveness and you repent, the Lord removes that shame from you. So wonderful. Fifth, the truly, repers- the truly repentant person hates sin. The truly repentant person will hate sin. There is a direct correlation between our love for Christ and our hatred for sin. The dearness with which you cling to sin reveals the desire of your heart to be far from Christ. When I used to be a youth pastor, it was a rather common question. I had so many conversations with teens who would come to me and they would ask, you know, how close can I get to certain things before it's sinful? He who has ears, let them hear what these teens were talking about. That question is a mirror into their hearts. And when we ask that question, it is a reflection of our own hearts when we ask it. Let's rephrase it. When we ask how close to the line we can get before it's sin, we are basically asking how far we can move away from Christ before it's sinful. The truly repentant person does not pour everything into trying to get as close to the line of sin as possible. The truly repentant pours everything they can into running directly to Christ and getting as close to Him as possible and staying there. And then you look at that line that crosses over into sin and you think, yuck, why would I ever want to travel in that direction? No, thank you. I am traveling in the direction of Jesus. And sixth and lastly, the truly repentant person turns from sin. As Christ becomes sweeter to us, our hatred for sin grows. And as we turn, our, we turn our backs on sin and we flee to Christ, if the heart has not turned away from sin, your repentance is a sham. It is not real. So now we see the public ministries of both John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 4:17 begins with these same words. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that call to repentance for every single one of us has not changed. Everyone who would enter into this kingdom, everyone who would inherit it, everyone who would receive it must bow their knee to the king. The Lord Jesus Christ, and let me tell you, he is a good king. He is a kind king 
who loves to confer citizenship upon all who turn from their old allegiances to sin, to self, and idolatry, and they turn to him. And while we might see this as a rather large sacrifice on our part, it really isn't. Because in King Jesus is life, and life to the full. In King Jesus is found our greatest joy. And this king gave up his own life for his people in order that they would live forever with him in his eternal kingdom of perfect peace, perfect harmony, and perfect wonder. Why wouldn't we want to serve a king like that? I have given my life to this king. I have bowed my knee to this king. And let me just tell you, my testimony is I have never, not for one single solitary second, regretted it. And if you don't know him this morning, the offer is held out to you. The preaching is held out to you. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ in faith and you will be a citizen of his kingdom. Now and forevermore, your sins will be forgiven. Your soul will be purified and you will be gifted eternal life. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All glory be to Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you that in it we find truth. We thank you that in it you reveal your plan to us. And at times, we don't know why you choose to do things the way that you do them. But, oh, Lord, who has been your counselor? Oh, the riches of your wisdom, the riches of your knowledge. Ultimately, I know this. I praise you for calling your people home, whether they are Jews or whether they are Gentiles. I praise you that you have called all of your people to bow their knee to King Jesus. And I praise you for the eternal kingdom in which all of us, who believe, will enjoy the richness of your love, the richness of your grace, the richness of your mercies, the glory of your good gifts forever and ever and ever. I can't wait, Lord, to be praising your name in the eternal kingdom with all of the saints from all times. And I pray that as we've gone through this text today, that uh, if there are any people that have not heard or have not responded in repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ, that your Holy Spirit would be convicting them right at this moment to do so. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. We thank you in his name. Amen.